This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Welcome to The Final Curtain. Ordinary New Zealanders telling their stories about death. I'm Shirley Welsh, host of Death Cafe Dunedin, where people meet in all sorts of places to drink tea, eat cake and discuss death. In this program, we break the taboo around talking about death and hear firsthand from New Zealanders about their experiences and their perspectives. Today I'm talking to Jo. Last week I interviewed Jo about her experiences living at Mount Cook Village where numerous people died in outdoor accidents. This week I'm interviewing her about the death of her younger brother at McKinnon Pass where he was working as a duck... duck, duck. I'll do that one again. Today I'm talking to Jo. Last week I interviewed Jo about her experiences living at Mount Cook Village where numerous people died in outdoor accidents within a few years. This week I'm interviewing her about the death of her younger brother Steve at Mount Kinnan Pass where he was working as a dock hut warden. Jo, describe Steve to us. Okay. Um... Stevie had, and I had grown up in the Pacific and quite often we lived in places where there wouldn't be very many Pakeha children and so um, we had a very close relationship. There was three years between us and yeah, there, obviously there was usual you know, fights between brothers and sisters but we did have a really close relationship and he was a strong guy. He was a very tall, He was probably, I think he was six foot four and uh, a strong guy and very athletic. And um, he really loved climbing. And he also, he'd been to Lincoln to do Parks and Rec. And then um, he would come and work wherever I was. So he'd come to Mount Cook every year to work there. And your relationship with him, you've described as close mm. growing up. Mm, very close. And maintained through your... Adulthood. Yeah, yeah, we had um, yeah, we had some pretty hard stuff happen in our, in our life, and um, our parents had got divorced, and there was a bit of unhappiness in the house, and we so it was always him and I that were together, and that we yeah, sort of worked together and held each other up. So, how did you hear that your brother had died? Mm-hmm. Well, um, he I'd spent. Um, ten days before I'd spent some time in Christchurch with him and he was on his way down to McKinnon Pass and um, he so he went down there and he worked and um, my I got a phone call at 7.30 in the morning to say that my brother-in-law had been killed at Rickerton Roundabout so I had gone over to get his brother who was my husband then um, and we had to go to Christchurch so we left the girls with friends of ours and we raced to Christchurch and we got to Christchurch and there was a, le- there was a message for me to ring my father or my mother and I rang them and the news had come through that he'd been avalanched, he'd been caught in an avalanche suspected dead but they hadn't recovered his body as yet yeah. So what happened? Tell us the circumstances oh. of his death. So he was hut warden at McKinnon Pass, and it, the winds get really, really strong up there, and the weather's pretty pretty yuck. And the hut was full, and he had given the usual morning talk, the blurb, he cooked, apparently cooked everybody bacon and eggs for breakfast, so I was told. And there was some people there, and he, oh, he advised everybody not to go. He said, look, the winds are really strong. 
best to stay in the hut for the day. Um, tomorrow the weather's meant to be better and there was some people that chose not to listen to him and you can't stop people from leaving. So they left and they got up to the top of McKinnon Pass and they got a radio call to say that one of them had hypothermia but they'd also drunk the night before and, and so he suspected that they were probably a bit hungover as well. And so he said to them, OK, you wait up the top of McKinnon Pass and I'll come up. And he was training another guy called Hugh. And so they got up to the top and they weren't there. And there's a little bypass. And um, he said to Hugh, you go down the main track. And, and my brother Steve would go around uh, the, the little track around. And Hugh waited for him and he didn't come back. And then he walked back a few metres and there was a rock avalanche that hadn't happened in hundreds of years. And, um, and he had been caught in the, av- in the avalanche. Now, you're... Your brother had a close relationship with my daughter. particularly one of your daughters, mm. Chloe. Yeah. So describe that relationship to us. Um, he had been with me when Chloe had been born. And it was really funny because um, we, we have a tradition that we take the placenta and we plant it with a tree. And um, they didn't want us to take the placenta. And so he'd brought in some newspaper and wrapped it up. And as he was walking out, they started kind of said to him, what's in there? And he said, oh, fish and chips, and, and left. And then and he, so he lived with us over those holidays, I think for six or eight weeks, and with Chloe's little baby. And then when we got back to Mount Cook um, and he was there, he, um, he used to play with... Chloe and Kushla, my other daughter, they used to have this, uh, this little house in Governor's Bush and they would go up for hours and pretend they were cooking and playing. But uh, the day after he died, or a couple of days, we got, came back to Mount Cook, Chloe just grabbed his, his belongings, his hat, his boots, and she put them on and she wouldn't take them off. And then in the morning I went and I could hear her laughing and laughing. She was saying, "No, Stevie, don't don't do this to me. You know, don't don't tickle me." And he, she was really playing with them, and it was a beautiful day. So all the children went outside, and for some reason, a monarch butterfly, which we never get at Mount Cook, had turned up, and it sat on Chloe for the whole day. And then about five o'clock, it was getting getting cold, and I said to Chloe, "Come on, we've all so all the children. We've got to go inside." And um, she said, oh, the butterfly needs to come in. And I said, it's fine. So the butterfly came in. And then a little while later, she said, oh, the butterfly's dead. Stevie's gone now. Yeah, he's gone. And then a few days later, we were actually up at the shop at Mount Cook, and um, this American woman came up and she said to Chloe, you're a really blessed little girl. You have a really strong guide sitting on your right shoulder. And she gave her a four-leaf clover, which I think Chloe still has. Yeah, so it was pretty special. After your brother died, you went and spread his ashes. So tell me about that. <laughs> well, when after he died, I and we had put some of his ashes in the house up in Governor's Bush, and I kept a bit because we'd had this incident in Tonga when we were little, and my parents had bought one of the few cars in Tonga, and um, we'd been out at the blowholes uh, in Tonga, and and I'd slammed his finger in the door, and a little bit of his finger had come off, which you know, was pretty pretty horrible, and we had been talking 
the two weeks before he went up to down to Milford Sound and he'd said to me, if I ever die before you do, you've got to go and take my, some of my, my ashes back to Tonga. So I went back to Tonga to live in, in 2003 and um, it was a beautiful night and I went out to the blowholes and it was full moon and it was just gorgeous and the blowholes were pumping and I threw these ashes out and just as I threw them out, this amazing puff of wind came and blew them all back in my mouth. And I just said, oh, you've got me, okay? <laughs> yeah, no, I've got you inside me now. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. You absolutely. No, you internalised them. Yeah. That's right. Um, how did Chloe deal with his death? given that they had such a close relationship. Yeah, Kushler and Chloe had a really strong relationship with, with Stevie and Kush was a bit older, so she understood a lot more. Um, and Chloe obviously knew. And they weren't too bad. Like, I mean, we were all so... We were really sad, you know, obviously. You know, he was my only brother. And my parents had had three of us and my sister had died just bef- just a few days before I was born and now this was their second child to die and um, so my parents were a mess obviously you know they they yeah they had a lot of hurt in them and we'd got, gone back to Mount Cook and um, and the girls were okay they understood because they'd been living at Mount Cook and they knew what death was even though they were small they they accepted it and still to this day you know they go up to Mount Cook and they go into the pretendy little house and his tree is still there and and um, we're just about to take my father's ashes up and put them with with my brother. Now, what about the people he went to go and rescue from from mm. the mountain? Did they ever contact you or try and make some sort of amends? No, they never signed out in the intentions book. Um, there was an investigation to try to find them, and we never found them. Although my mother received a card a few years later, and she has a feeling it was from one of them, but it had nothing on it to suggest that maybe it was or wasn't, but it was a bit weird. And she just had a feeling that maybe it was, but no, we never found them and they never never made contact with us at all. And what did you feel towards them? Um, in the beginning, I felt quite angry towards them because without them doing that... Um, that he wouldn't have died, you know, and, and so that was really hard. But it was also a really good lesson, I think, for everybody. On you know, these guys that give their lives to doing things like saving people, and other people who just have no regard for who that they are, that they're people and they're doing a job, but they're also doing it because they really believe. And, and what you know, and, and being able to be in the mountains and have other people there, and I think that for me it was a real, it was a real kick in the face. Like, you know, how could someone do that? How could someone just walk away knowing? I mean, it was all on every paper. It was on TV. Um, there was lots talked about it. And how could you do that without coming forward and just and and we would have been so approachable. You know, we would have liked to have talked to them, and I would like to still know why they did it. But we, they didn't give us that opportunity. And I think that was the hardest thing. Um, with him dying, obviously for me, it was just absolutely shattering. I, I loved him so much and we spent so much time together. And um, yeah, so it was it was hard. It was really hard. Still is actually. I still, I don't think there's ever a day now when I don't think about him. Yeah, he pops into my head 
every day. Yeah. Now, you were describing that on the day that you'd heard he had died, your mm. brother-in-law had died, yeah. and there were other deaths too. So tell us about that. Um, the day that he that he died, um, my brother-in-law had, had been at Mount Cock and he'd gone to Christchurch to do some Christmas shopping for us. And um, he was um, a milk tanker hit his feet up and he was thrown out. He was killed instantly. Um, and the day, two days before that, we had just come back from Christchurch because my ex-husband's um, nana had just died. So that was sort of three in, in, in a matter of a week or less than a week. And so that was that was quite challenging. And with every death, you know, it was it was challenging. But for me, holding such a strong belief, and I do, I really, really, I have, no one can ever tell me we don't reincarnate. People have tried, believe me. But I totally believe in the whole Buddhist philosophy of death and dying. And, um, and I like that philosophy. I, it, it justifies, well it doesn't justify, but it just gives me a sense of, of everybody's worth. That, you know, we are all put on here for reasons. I think um, within um, Buddhism, you know, everybody has a lesson to learn this life. So obviously next life there will be another lesson. I was born into death and I have had so many people that I have loved that have died um, that I think my lesson was death, and I hope that I have learned it. My father died during um, lockdown, during Rahui, and and it was really hard because obviously I couldn't see his body. I spent the day before with him, um, but I wasn't allowed to see his body because of all the restrictions. And for me, I would like to probably have brought him home and had him at home, but it wasn't possible. And he was the first death in our family that all my children who had been quite close to him were involved in and I think that was quite hard for them that they weren't allowed to see him or when I mean, we've got his ashes they sit on the kitchen table and we talk to or talk to him and we'll take him up to Mount Cook next week and, and because he you know. also had a connection with Mount Cook mm, yeah he did um, my father's he was an amazing man but he had um he was a climber, and so was my mother, and they were all so hut wardens up at Mount Cock, and we'd spent a lot of time up there. My, when my sister was alive, they'd spent quite a bit of time there, and then me as a, as a child and my brother. And, um, yeah, so, and Dad had basically taught us to climb. And so, yeah, it was a big connection. And and my, my nana, who, who looked after me, because my mother was obviously quite a mess after my sister died of meningitis and they didn't know at that stage what it was so my nana stepped in and she brought me up and she'd also spent a lot of time at Mount Cook so Mount Cook was a really special place for all of us it's got a real spiritual heart for for us all I think yeah so your father being a climber didn't dissuade your brother from following (laughs) in his stead no definitely not he'd dissuade us all from being going into education <laughs> but um, no not for climbing and right up to um, when he developed Alzheimer's he spent huge amounts of time still in the bush and around the mountains and he just loved them yeah. Now you and your brother both spent time in Tonga mm. so what lessons have has Tonga taught you about death? Um, I really like the way the Pacific deals with death 
It's a very family orientated thing. It's not hidden from children or anybody else. Um, so start with the person will die. They'll be oiled and wrapped in tapa or a mat or whatever, and they'll lay in the home um, for everybody to kiss them and of course there's no embalming there or no refrigeration so for usually sort of five seven days ten days they'll lie there and the woman in particular sing these amazing hymns and they sing them to to the heavens and it's just a beautiful thing and then on the tenth day at sunrise um, they will be lowered into the ground and say goodbye and then the grieving's done it's done that 10 days before. And it doesn't mean to say they don't forget that person, but the grieving, the actual grieving, has done from the time they die until the time they put them in the ground. Do you think having been raised in that tradition, if you like, has helped you deal with the deaths that you've had to encounter? I think definitely. And I note with my dad, who died you know, a few weeks ago, I had said to the the people at the nursing home that I wanted him oiled and I just wanted a shroud made I didn't want him so I wanted a Buddhist prayer him oiled and I'd left candles and things like that and the oil and that's all I wanted was a shroud and to take him and get him cremated um, and my son whose father died because my son had a different father than the girls have his dad had died of cancer and um, he had been down at, he lived at Milford Sound as well which was pretty Pretty but um, he, I was in Rarotonga living and he rang me and he said mum dad's just died and I said when she said like now mum and I said what do you want to do and he said I want to oil him and I want to because he'd also grown up in Tonga like, um, Nikosi had been there since he was five or six, six and he was now at that stage when his dad died he was 21 and um, and he said, I want to do the Tongan thing. And my my partner at the time, who was Tongan, he sang the hymns to him on the phone while while my son did it. Yeah, and he rang me about oh, four or five days later because I was sort of thinking, do I come over for for his putu, you know, for his funeral? But he had a wife, and I didn't want to get in her way, although I knew her and. We had remained really, really good friends. But Nikos rang me and he said to me, you know, I'm so pleased I was brought up in Tonga. Mum, thank you. And I said, why? And he said, because I have no fear of death. You know, he said, although you've brought us up to have these spiritual beliefs and I still don't know if I have those and one day I'll develop them, but I do know that growing up in Tonga and seeing death and it being handled how it was was such a cool thing to have done. So that was, that was good to know. Now, your brother, Steve, yep. did he have the same views that you did mm. and spiritual beliefs that you had around um, death? Yeah, he did. Like, we talked about it quite often. Um, yeah, he did. I don't think his was as strong as mine was, but um, we had often talked about that, and obviously when he told me that I had to take my, his finger back, because he wanted to, to be, you know, like he wanted to be reincarnated in, in Tonga, basically. Or, yeah. Entire and, um, in Tonga. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, no, I think he, was, he wasn't he was a hugely spiritual person, but he'd grown up with me. And so he understood where I came from. Yeah. So what do you think has happened to Steve? If, if you say mm. you believe in reincarnation. Yeah, well... I've got a daughter, Sophie, who's my youngest daughter, and she was born um, nine and a half, ten months after my brother died, and she looks like him. 
and she moves like him and she's got a lot of his ways and I would and there's been times in our life where my mother and my father and I have she's been behind us and we've turned around and all thought oh Steve's here and it's not it's been Sophie and I would like to think that maybe Sophie has got a lot of him in her you know, that he maybe has been reincarnated as him because he was like he was young and he wasn't definitely not ready to die and I think um, within Buddhism, you know, there's no, there's no time, la- time frame for reincarnation. And I think that she was such a good thing to come into our lives, you know, at a time of total sadness. And here was this child that was born out of the blue. And, yeah, and she's so like him. And I love it. I was going to ask you, is it comforting having a child that looks like your brother and behaves like your brother, or is it quite disquieting? No, I think it's lovely. I really love it. Sophie's got quite a similar personality to him. She's very bubbly, and and she's guys hot and cold, <laughs> which he did too. He could... Um, he he was such a cool guy, but but he could lose his temper and um, get quite angry, and so got that similar, yeah. Sort of, and it's and it's lovely for me. It's really comforting, and because she was so unexpected, um, it was yeah. She just brought joy, and yeah, she's pretty special. Now you mentioned taking your dad's ashes up to Mount Cook, mm-hmm. so tell me a bit about that. So next weekend, um, all my children. And their partners, um, we're going up to Mount Cook. We're going to stay at Unwin Hut, where he was used to be the warden, and um, we're going to have a night of whiskey um, and slides and stories. Because my father was an amazing storyteller. He was born to tell stories. He was an educationist. He was um, t- he started the training college in Tonga. He was director of education in Cook Islands, and then he became director of education for the South Pacific with the um, South Pacific Commission. And he was a real, and then he came back to Christchurch and they gave him a school which was just absolutely losing it. Um, and he, it was a low diesel school and he built boats and we had some land in Takamatua and he built um, Taylor's Outdoor Education Centre. And he taught all, they brought all the kids up to Mount Cook. And most of those children never left Christchurch, actually none of them. Or learnt to sail or abseil or anything. So he was a real, you know, really good educator of the world. And he, and he had quite a lot of alternative theories on education. Yeah, so um, we, we'll take him back up to Mount Cook and have a bit of a story time and, um, yeah, took some whiskey. <laughs> and when you go back to Mount Cook... Having had so many traumatic experiences mm-hmm. up there, as well as positive ones, yep. w- what's your general sense? Oh, I just love it. Like we, we all get up there, and it's home. It's my only home in, in New Zealand because I didn't grow up here, so it was the only home that I knew. And um, like, if I say where home is, it's, it's Tonga, because I was so young when I went to Tonga. And then obviously going back for all those years. But in New Zealand, it's Mount Cook. And my, my daughters were born up there. And so it's a really special place for all of us. And they all go up there when they need time out. And there, two of them are just moving up around that area to live because they sort of they want to go back home. Yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's an amazing place. So the fact that there have been so many deaths mm-hmm. up there hasn't hasn't changed that for you? No, I think that it's actually um, a, it's it's 
it's sad, but it's also really comforting. You know, like, it's just, to me, it's just such a beautiful spiritual place. And I just feel that all the souls of the people that have lived there and, and gone, they're still there. And, yeah, and I think that... Um, yeah, when I died, when I die, if I wanted to, you know, it was a place that I'd love myself to go back to. Yeah, so no, it's a, it's a special place. Joe, thank you so much for talking to us. Your experience is really very unique, I'd say, in, in New Zealand and your exposure to death. So fantastic to hear about your attitudes to death and how you've managed to deal with it in a way that hasn't left you damaged. Thank you. You've been listening to The Final Curtain, ordinary New Zealanders telling their stories about death. Podcasts from this series are available online at oar.org.nz and from the accessmedia.nz app. At Death Café Dunedin, the conversation continues. You can join that conversation by listening to other New Zealanders tell their stories about death and, if you want to, by sharing yours. Look for Death Cafe Dunedin on Facebook for updates and meeting times. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.